waiting on the Lord. I'm going to go way out on a limb and assume that some of you are waiting on the Lord right now. Am I going way out on a limb to assume that? I'm not, am I? It's a common position to be in in life, to feel like we're waiting on the Lord. We're always waiting on the Lord to some degree. And for some of us at times, we're desperately waiting on the Lord. And uh, so I, I, I've been praying this week that that, wherever you're at on that spectrum, that the Word this morning would be a tremendous encouragement to you. Because we wait on a God who is there. He's there. He's good. And that's the hope we have. And that's what this passage is about. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you're using the black Bible on the pew uh, in front of you, you'll find it on page 225. 225. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to be talking about Hannah this morning. We're, we're in a series, if you're visiting us or new, we're in a series called Women of Faith. And uh, it's a six-week series. So I had to, to, to limit the uh, selections to six different women in the Scripture for this. I could, I could have preached a really long series. There's so many uh, different examples of women of the faith in the Bible. And and uh, I had to choose six. Uh, I put that cap on myself, I guess, by just doing a six-week series. And originally, I was not going to do Hannah. I, I, I considered Hannah, and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to uh, to preach on Hannah out of 1 Samuel because, uh, really only one reason, uh, we just went through the book of 1 Samuel in 2015. So if you've been here for two years, you know, we... You, you heard a sermon on Hannah already, and I thought, well, you know, I know a lot of people probably haven't been here for two years, but I'll choose six others. And uh, anyway, I put Hannah aside. And then uh, I kept coming back to this story because that sermon in 2015 on Hannah was actually one of my favorites because of the themes of, this, of her story. A woman who's waiting on the Lord, desperately so, and hearing from Him, seeing Him move in such a way that, that we can all uh, learn something about the faithfulness and the goodness of God for every one of His children. And she certainly was His. And He makes that abundantly clear to her through this passage. And, and I, I remember at the time, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, I get feedback from time to time on sermons, but this was one where I, I got a lot of feedback. And I know it really encouraged people. And uh, I wanted to just do it again. I felt like the Lord was saying, do it again. Do it again. So, we're going to look at Hannah this morning. Uh, would you pray with me? Let's ask God to do all that I've just said I'm hoping He'll do in us. Father, we thank You for your word and how every page of this book was written for us, for our instruction to really, more than anything else, to point our eyes to you. We learn about you here. And we learn so much about ourselves. And today we're going to look at a woman who I think many of us can relate to. We'll see ourselves here. And Lord, I pray that as we see ourselves, you won't let us keep our focus on ourselves long, but you'll draw our eyes up to you to see you. 
Because that's what we need more than anything else. We need to see You. We need to know You. We need to believe You. We need to trust You. And we need to receive from You Your grace. So in Your Son and by Your Spirit, Lord, would You illuminate our eyes and hearts to see and receive Your grace this morning. And encourage the weary among us. Encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hannah's story. Uh, and we look at the Bible, the whole Bible. First uh, Samuel, uh, you can say this about this, this book as well, but the, the, the bottom line is the whole Bible works this way. It's, the, it's a big story. It's, it's from start to finish. Uh, it is the big story that you can really sum up in a sentence or two that's, that would say something to the fact of this is the story of God's ongoing redemptive plan for the world. He created us. He created us to have fellowship with Him and that was broken in the Garden of Eden at the fall as Adam and Eve sinned. They were tempted and they sinned. And, and, and any one of us would have done that uh, in our human frailty. We are certainly vulnerable and susceptible to sin. And not only that, but now we're bound to it because of their sin. And so this, the story of Scripture is God stepping back into a broken world that had rejected and abandoned Him and lovingly pulling them back to Himself. Calling a people out and saying, though you are not worthy, you're sinners, you deserve My wrath, I'm going to love you and shower you with My grace and My mercy and make you My own. I'll cleanse you and make you My bride. That's the story of the Bible. And it all leads up to Jesus whom God accomplishes all of that in, sending His Son to die on the cross for our sin and resurrect us to new life with Himself. That's the Bible, right? So there's the big story of the Bible, but, but within it there are many, many little stories about people like you and me. And oftentimes we see that those little stories are pointers back to the big story. And Hannah's life does that. She's a beautiful pointer to that big picture plan of God's redemptive work to save and cleanse and make uh, glorified, justified, redeemed uh, people for Himself. So here's the big idea, alright? If you take notes and you only put this down on your paper, you're going to walk away with something good, alright? Big idea uh, this morning is this. God is always working to fulfill His sovereign, global, historical plans and promises. He's always working to fulfill His sovereign, global, historical plans and promises. That's the big story. And here's the, here's the, here's the, the, the encouraging part. Every one of His beloved people, if you're a Christian this morning, that's you, has a grand place in the story. He's always working to fulfill His, his plans and promises. And, and you, Christians, and every one of us, has a place in that story. That's the big idea. Let's dive in and look at Hannah's story and see how this is true for her and us. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth. He was an Ephathrite. He had two wives, 
The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We'll stop there and just get a pretty good sense here of, of Hannah's life. To describe Hannah as a distraught woman would be an understatement if you really consider what's going on. And not just what's happening in her life, but the context and the, even the time and the setting of what's going on with her. Uh, her life seems, frankly, miserable. I want you to just consider with me all that we're told here about her life. She's, first of all, married to a man who had two wives. Now, that was a fairly common thing uh, in Israel and in this time and place, uh, though never uh, God's design. So right off the bat, she's living within a, a, a home life that's not, it's not right. All right? And, and I, you know, we don't live in a, in a society, thank goodness, where we, we tolerate multiple marriages like this. Uh, but you can imagine, those of you who are married, what that would be like right off the bat. You're sharing your spouse with somebody else. That's her situation. That's her home life. Her name, Hannah, means favored. But she's not favored, is she? She's actually barren. And this is always difficult for any woman who desires to have children. Some of you are in that boat. You maybe desire to have children, but the Lord hasn't allowed that. It's a difficult place to be. You know that. But, I, but understand that for her, in her society and context, the stakes were even higher. There, there wasn't opportunities for her to do other things uh, like there are today. She couldn't go out and just decide, well, she'll be you know, a full-time career woman or whatever. Her, much of her identity and value in society was based on the simple fact that could she produce an heir for her husband? And so she's in the situation where she knows she cannot do that. And so she's, she's got to be deeply questioning her value, her worth, her identity as a wife and as a woman in this society. To make matters worse, yes, now her husband has another wife, but, but we're, the indication here is that this is a second wife, a, sort of a, a replacement, if you will, uh, to provide an heir. He marries this woman, Penina. Uh, he probably, uh, well, there's no doubt in my mind that he loved Hannah, right? He says that he does. But, but Penina is probably younger, and she's certainly more fertile. In fact, her name means fruitful. Could you imagine that? Right? You're a barren woman, and your husband decides he's going to go out and get a younger woman to provide an heir, and he brings her home and says, let me introduce her. Her name's fruitful. 
That, that stings, right? That stings. And, and not only is that true about her, but, but she's, she's also a gloater. Because she's taking every opportunity that she can get to point it out to Hannah that I've provided children and you can't. Right? Every year she says this. She, she gloats. She makes fun. She prods and, and she pokes. So that's a terrible way to live life. And then the last thing that, that I'll point out here, although I don't think his intentions were bad, but if you look back at verse 8, you, you get a sense that, that her husband, though he loves her and takes pity on her, doesn't really understand her. Look at again what he says. He says to her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why, why aren't you eating? Why are you sad? Women, can you relate? Your husband's kind of like, what's wrong? Right? That's kind of one of those moments. He's like, are you kidding me? And then he says this to her. He says, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? Is that what she needed to hear? Guys, let me give you a tip. In a, in a situation like that, you might want to say, honey, you're worth more to me than ten sons. But don't have her tell you that you're worth more to her. Right? So this is a situation where her husband doesn't understand. It's a difficult thing to go through life when you have unfulfilled longings of the heart, right? And I think that's what we can begin to relate to her. That's where we're, we're sort of being called to step into her shoes. It's a difficult thing to go through life with unfulfilled longings. And it's compounded when you're surrounded by others who gleefully have what you so desperately want. Everywhere you look, you're seeing what you want and you can't and you aren't. And it compounds. And even if they express love to you, they don't seem to understand you. As I'm reading this, I, I'm just continually mindful of so many of us and what, what I hear and, and what you experience. So I want you to go back to the big idea. Okay, Here's the setup. Here's this life that we're looking at. And here's the big idea. God is always working to fulfill his sovereign, global, historical plans and promises. He's always working to do that. And every one of His beloved, you, believer, have a place in that story. You have a place in that story. There's something stated in this text that's of vital importance for us to grasp. It's in verse 5. Did you catch it? Why is she barren? It says, but to Hannah He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, right? It was the Lord who had done this in her life. Uh, that doesn't diminish her pain. It doesn't diminish anybody's pain to recognize that the Lord is actively involved in even our trials, but it's certainly an important thing that should guide us as we consider our own unfulfilled longings. God is always in control. He's always in control. He's got a plan and a purpose even in our trials. God is good. God is loving. And yet He will purpose trials. And so how do you rectify that? You've you got to recognize, you got to see that even in your trials, God is at work. And He's good. And it's clear here that Hannah, even in her barrenness, is very much a part of God's plan. So before we continue to read, I just, I just want to kind of pound that home for you this morning. If you're a Christian, I want you to hear and believe it. 
God is not absent in your trials. He is not absent in your trials. He has a plan and a purpose that includes you. So how do you respond? As you wait, how do you respond? Well, let's look at what Hannah does here in her great distress during her waiting. Something we can learn from. She prays. That's the second part of the passage here. Hannah's prayer. The first one was her her problem, her plight, her devastation. The second, her prayer. Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That was the Levite, uh, excuse me, the Nazarite vow, by the way. So she's saying, if, if you'll give me a son, I'll dedicate him back to you, a Nazarite. No, no razor will touch his head. He will be, his life will be devoted to you, God. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest, observes her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Alright, so here's a woman in this this desperate situation, and she does something that we can learn from here. That's why she's here as, a, as an example. She goes to the Lord. She's waiting on Him and she goes directly to Him and she prays. And I want you to notice something here about the nature of genuine prayer because I think hers is certainly that. The kind of the prayer that, that God hears. Notice what she does here. Verse 10, it says, In her deep distress, she prayed and she wept bitterly. She wept bitterly. That's a good thing. In other words, she's coming to God and she's not holding anything back. She's honest with God. She trusts God to, to, well, enough to know that she doesn't have to, to sort of clean herself up or present herself in some kind of righteous way before God. She can come and honestly just cry and say, God, I'm, I'm miserable. I'm devastated. I'm empty, right? God, God hears those prayers. God desires those prayers. Those are honest, dependent, vulnerable moments. It says in verse 15 that she poured out her soul before the Lord. She didn't hold anything back. She came as, I appreciate it as Esteban was praying earlier, just that reminder that God's a father. When you're a father, you don't want your kids to come and tell you sort of a, a, a cleaned up, sort of half true sort of story. You just, you want to hear, how are you? Son, daughter, tell me. Just open up. Just, just tell me. How, how are you doing? What do you need? Right? And, and she approaches God in that way. It says in verse 16, she spoke out of her great anxiety and vexation. Listen, if you're 
seeking after a communication with your Father in heaven in prayer. Just come and tell him. Right? That's the point. Just come and tell him and trust him to be a, a father. And I want you to notice also that the heart motive for her prayer it wasn't a selfish prayer. She's not saying, God, give me a child so I can be like Penina and go back and sort of be like, ha, see, I got one too. She, she's, she's saying, look, if you would grant to me to bear a son, I'll, I'll dedicate him to you. Which seems crazy. I mean, in a sense, like if you're, you're asking for a child and essentially you're saying, and I'll, I'll give that child up immediately. There's no selfish motive in that. She would give him back to God. Though he would not be a Nazarite, by the way, she said, I'll dedicate him as such to you, God. And I want you to get this because this is a very important point about what we're seeing in Hannah's heart. Her intent was to glorify God through her life. Why is it that she wanted this child? What does she want to do with it? She's saying, God, I want to give you glory. There's not a sense of selfishness here. Which I think would help direct our prayers too. You know, when, when Jesus says to us, if you ask anything according to the Father's will, He'll answer you. Right? What does He mean by that? I think what she's doing is an example of what He means by that. When we come to God and ask Him for something, if our motives are self-directed, like I just want you to, to, to fulfill this one thing for me and for me only, that's a selfish request that's probably not going to fall within the will of God. But if we're saying, God, I want what You want and I want to give glory to You with my life, I want to dedicate the fruit of my womb to You, God, it's about You. That's the kind of prayer that God answers. And I think that's her full intent. She wanted to glorify God and her prayer was guided for that or by that conviction. Is that the way you pray? We can learn from that. And then the last thing I want you to notice about her prayer is what happened to her after she prayed. What happened to her countenance at the end of her prayer? It says there in verse 18 that she went away and she ate and she was no longer sad. Remember what her husband had said to her before? Why are you so sad? Why aren't you eating? She comes and she lays herself out before the Lord. She seeks to glorify God and say, God, it's, it's all about you. Just, just take and do what you will. And it, it, it changes her countenance. She gets up and she eats and she's not sad anymore. How does she have that kind of confidence in her prayer? What's she gaining awareness of? Well, again, keep in mind the big idea. God is always working to fulfill His sovereign, global, historical plans. And every one of His beloved people has a special place in that story. And I think, I think in this moment, Hannah knows, I've, I've laid it out. I'm trusting God. He's got a plan and a purpose. I'm a part of it. He hears me. I'm okay. And she doesn't have an answer yet, but she has a trust in the one that she's asked enough to get up and say, I'll eat. I'm not sad. What safer place is there for my request to be than in the hands of the sovereign and good God who's always working for His people? That's her attitude here. And then look at the very important phrase at the end of verse 19. This is, this is I think, is the Lord's uh, reminder here through His Word to us that yeah, He's hearing the prayers of His people. It says that the Lord remembered 
her. He remembered her. He'd never forgotten her. In other words, God is now acting in accordance with His covenant promise. He never forgets His own. But He acts. But it says something in verse 20 that's important here. It says He acted in due time. Not not her timetable. Not your timetable. Not mine. His time. And He acted. His timing. And what happens? Hannah conceives a son. She names him Samuel, which by the way probably means the child who was asked for from the one who is God. And we're told that she waits until the boy was weaned before returning to Shiloh with her husband and giving him back to the Lord to stay with Eli the priest just as she had vowed. God answers the prayer and she follows through. She's getting the big idea. She understands God is always acting and I've got a place in the story. And how do I know she's getting the big idea? Well, it's the last part of the story here. It's, it's her prophetic praise in verses 19 of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 2. Let's look at that together. They rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord and they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish His Word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And then Hannah prays again and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. And there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows, excuse me, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. All right, I said her praise is prophetic because in this song that she sings, and it's a song, we finally see the melding of God's big purposes with Hannah's recognition of her place in the grand story. Uh, why do I say that? Well, I want you to look at the words that she sings here and notice that they're kind of strange words for someone to sing after having a baby. All right, Look at verse uh, 4 and 5 again. Uh, the, the bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You look at verse 9. He'll, he'll guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Uh, verse 10, uh, you see, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Uh, broken to pieces shall be the adversaries of the Lord. These aren't lullaby words, right? They're kind of weird. Like, you know, God's going to kill all of his enemies. That's a weird thing to sing after you have a baby. What, what is she doing there? Well, I think what she's recognizing here is that there's something bigger going on than just her story. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a sense here that she recognizes that her long and painful journey has been about something bigger than just her long, painful journey. The, the language she uses here is reminiscent of language that we see in Exodus concerning the nation, Israel's miserable long journey and God's promises to redeem them. So she's seeing herself as sort of a microcosm in her story of God's grand redemptive purposes for His people. This is what He's done for His people in delivering them from their circumstances and their enemies. He's, he's doing it in my life. And she's, she's linking the two together, right? Tim Chester points out in his commentary, like Hannah, he says, we are all barren and fruitless spiritually. But Hannah's story moves from barrenness to fruitfulness. God brings life where there is no life. Like Hannah, we're beset by enemies. Israel's enemies were the Philistines. And they were, in one sense, the enemies that humanity faces. The enemies of sin and death. But we look at Hannah's story, the movement in her story is from a woman who was provoked by her rival, by her enemies, to moving into being a woman who can say, my mouth boasts over my enemies. God is delivering me and establishing me over my enemies as He's done for His people, as He does for all of His people. This is who God is. I think that's her recognition in singing words like this in this song. What God has done for Hannah is a pointer for what God will do for all of His people. So here's the point. Again, God is always working to fulfill His sovereign, global, historical plans and promises. And every one of His people has a place in the grand story. And what is the grand story? What does it all point to? It's the proclamation of the Gospel in the world. God's redemptive plan is about the Gospel. And it culminates itself in Jesus. I want you to, to, to just kind of follow me through this. This is kind of a cool thing to, to really consider. Her unfulfilled longings and her vexations were not wasted. They were not for nothing. They were God's grace to her in pointing her to a bigger story. 
If she hadn't gone through this waiting and, and wondering about God and then seeing God come and, and rescue and deliver and establish her, would she have been able to sing a song like this and understand who God is? What God's like? What God is about? I, I doubt it. Right? God used this in her life to, to illuminate her eyes and her heart to see what He's about, what He's like, and her part in that. And that's the application for you and me. That's the application for you and me. When you wait on God, when you're waiting for your heart's desires, don't lose faith and think for a minute that God has forgotten you. Don't think for a minute that you're somehow outside of what we've seen here where yeah, God remembers and acts in His due time. He's not doing that for me. He's just forgotten me. Don't think that way. Because that's not who God is and that's not how... God acts at all times. We must remember that He's writing a story. And it's the greatest story ever told. And you, Christian, all of us Christians who belong to His family are always a part of it. You're always a part of it. And the key for us is to believe in the faithful promises of God. Believe in them. And to apply the Gospel to your situation. Look for how does this point to the bigger picture of, of God's redemptive plan? How does my little trial maybe fit into that? What does God have to say to me or through me in my trial? Because He's telling a story. And He hasn't forgotten. Let me show you how this was true for Hannah. Hannah was not the first and only woman, barren woman I should say, to be used by God for greater things. There's actually a long line of barren women in the Bible that God does something amazingly similar and wonderful through. Let me talk to you about some of them. Abraham's wife Sarah was barren. And God in that brought about Isaac, right? And his wife, Rebekah, was barren. And Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren. And even Samson's mother was barren before the Lord in His time answered their prayers and opened their womb and did something. And in every one of those cases, the Lord used the offspring of the barren woman to deliver and establish His people. Every one of them. But here's the most important par parallel, I think, perhaps in the Bible. is, is it's, in, it's actually in the New Testament. And it's in Elizabeth. She too was barren for many years. And then the Lord opened up her womb and she conceived and she gave birth to John the Baptist. Think about the amazing Gospel picture in Elizabeth and Hannah and how they really parallel one another. Hannah's child, Samuel, lives as a Nazarite and would prepare the way for the coming king, David. That's what the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is all about. He's going to become like the prophet who establishes the coming king, prepares the way for David. We flip back to the New Testament and we look at Elizabeth's child, John the Baptist, who also lives as a Nazarite, and he comes to prepare the way for the new David. For the ultimate coming king, Jesus Christ. And so Hannah, if she could see that far into the future, could see that her story is painting a picture and pointing the way to the ultimate story of the coming king and the one who would prepare the way, the one born from the barren woman, Hannah and Elizabeth. God's writing His grand story. 
And Hannah, in fact, becomes a huge part of it. A huge part of it. I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a believer who's wrestling with the unfulfilled longing of your heart, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. And all of our longings will be answered. Now, let me clarify that. Let me clarify that. i got to make it clear that this passage should not automatically lead us to conclude that all those longings will be answered in this life. Not every barren woman is going to be able to just pray and God's going to provide a baby or whatever trial that you might be going through this morning. Just because you asked for it, it's not a guarantee that God is going to answer that longing in this life. If you're thinking that way, let me just caution you. You're having too small a view of the big story. Sometimes God closes the womb and keeps it closed. Sometimes He keeps us in trials. But it's always for His greater purposes. I want you to remember the, the blind man. Remember the blind man that, that Jesus encountered in John chapter 9? And people are asking Him, what, what did His mom and dad do wrong? Why was He born blind? Let me read it for you. He passed by, He saw a blind man from birth, and His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or His parents that He was born blind? In other words, there's got to be some reason for this trial. He, he must have done something wrong, or somebody did. And Jesus answered, no, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but it was this reason. It was that the works of God might be displayed in him. And of course, Jesus then took the mud and wiped it on his eyes and he, he saw, right? And we knew then that the whole point of this guy's life and the trial that he faced for all those years of being blind was leading up to that one moment where he would be used to display the glory of Christ. Sometimes the Lord takes a trial away and sometimes he, he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. But here's your confidence, Christian. Your life as a child of God is always a part of the grand story of God. That's what he's called you to. And you can have confidence that he's not forgotten any of you. His hand is sovereignly on you and directing you and every every move you make and and can you go and, and and make wrong turns and sure you can do all that but God's hand never leaves he's always writing the story and it's got an ending and he's got a direction he's he's leading you there though you may try to make it real crooked he keeps you going because he's got a purpose in telling the world a story through his people and there's great joy in that for you. You're going to be tempted to doubt God. Some of you are doubting God even now. Even as I'm saying these words to you, you're going, yeah, not me. You're you'll be tempted to doubt God. You'll be tempted to seek the gift rather than the giver. Just give me the baby, God. You'll be tempted to try to satisfy your own longings through your own efforts. But don't do that. Remember Hannah's song. She said, For not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might. Your, your weakness is the necessary platform for God to do His mighty work of salvation. That's, that's the way He works, alright? So be weak. It's okay. And wait for Him to vindicate you in due time. In His time. He knows what He's doing. Here's, here's, a, here's something I want to just end with. This is a... 
This is an amazing thing. Our lives are meant, every one of us as Christians, our lives are meant to point to the coming King. That's what Hannah's life was about. Through her son, that's what his life was about. And every one of us, it's, it's meant to point to the coming of the ultimate King, Jesus. Our lives are meant to point to Jesus. And when He comes, every longing of our heart is not only fulfilled. Really, every longing is not only fulfilled, they're filled in abundance because the kingdom has no lack. No lack. There is only fruitfulness and life in God's kingdom. And, and God telling of that good news story through our lives, whether in trial or victory, all leads us to and secures our place in the grand finale of that story. There was a, uh, there was a video I showed last fall, uh, for those of you who are here, of a young family in Arizona. There are missionaries to Papua New Guinea. And, uh, and they're just young. I mean, they're four little kids. Uh, they're in their, their early to mid thirties, the couple. And they came back on furlough because their daughter was having tonsil issues. And they were persistent to the point where they couldn't get the treatment that they needed in Papua New Guinea. And so they had to come back to treat this tonsil issue for their daughter. And in doing so, they came back to the States. They all got their medical checkups and they found that Matt, the husband, had stage four lung cancer and they didn't know it. And so, now, like, their life is upended and, and, you know, they're thinking, Matt's, it's not looking good for Matt and, 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 and what are they gonna do? And I showed you that video. Uh, those of you who are here, you might remember when we prayed for them and, and what happened after that was that he had a stroke. Uh, and things started to look real bad. All of a sudden he couldn't talk anymore. His, you know, the left side of his body went down and, and, uh, and then he started to respond to some treatment. And it was like the stroke never happened. He started to regain his speaking and he started to get healthy and they were, they were starting to do chemo and it looked like he was just going to turn the corner and, and get out of the woods. And then I got a notification on Facebook this last week from his wife Cameron and this is what she said. Two days ago, Matt was admitted to the hospital due to an increase in pain nausea and fatigue and after a ct scan of his chest and abdomen we found that the cancer had spread significantly more from the scan that was taken just three weeks ago what this indicates is that the cancer is resistant to chemotherapy so in god's good providence we are medically speaking out of options to treat it when matt's sweet and wonderful oncologist sat down with us on monday night with the results from the ct he said that matt likely has four weeks left to live She says, so in light of this soul-aching news of the Lord taking Matt soon, I'd like to tell you about all of the things God has given us. Matt should have died on a remote mountaintop in Papua New Guinea when he had his stroke back in February. We should have been alone in a village, completely at a loss for what happened or why, but instead, God had our daughter Susanna get sick with tonsillitis over and over again so that we would be home. And we would know about the cancer so the doctors would save his life in February and so that we could have the last six months together as a family. In those six months, God's given us a house to live in, furniture to sleep on, insurance to pay our staggering medical bills. By the way, they had none of those things. And literally, God's people gave it to them. We've gotten to run on the beach, celebrate another anniversary, watch our daughter turn 11 together. But We can go back further than that. In 2005, when I fell off a cliff while hiking, I could have died right then. 
and put an end to this love story. No kids, no Papua New Guinea. But God preserved my life and instead it was three months in a wheelchair and many invaluable life lessons learned. Over the last 13 years together, really our whole lives, God has never once failed to provide food for us to eat, clothes to wear, a roof over our heads, even if it was just a hut when Matt was hiking all over the non-sanitized mountains of the equatorial jungle. He's given us four really stupendous kids together. Time to watch them grow up until this point. And as a result, they all have a little bit of mad in them, and that's something precious God didn't have to give us. We can go back further than that to a day where Roman soldiers put a convicted man on a cross who would not only, who would not and could not stay dead. Because he wasn't just a man. He was the Son of God. Come to earth to bear on that cross the sins of every sinner who would have eyes to see he needs saving. And rise from the dead as a promise and a hope that if we are found in him and he be raised, so shall we. Not just to streets made of gold or gates made of pearls, but to the one who made us, gave us his son to redeem us and sustains us until the day he appoints for us to be with him. God has given us salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. For us to begrudge or bemoan him, this news, it's just silly. Sad, yes. It's sorrowful and difficult and grief-filled. It's not wrong. It's not unjust. It's not unkind. It's not unloving. If anything, we've seen the opposite of that. It's been the heaviest of days. I've had to tell these four sweet children that they will need to say goodbye to their dad. And I have to process the fact that one day soon, the goodbye Matt and I get to say to each other will be our last. It's hard not to dwell on the fact that more than anything, Matt has been to me the last 13 years my best friend and I'll lose him. These things are true and real and unspeakably hard to wade through and yet, and there is an end yet, and yet I will see Matt again. And yet, the things that were true last week are still true. God is still good and faithful and worthy to be praised. Our sin is still forgiven. He's done us no wrong in bringing Matt to death the same way he brought him to life. And the fact that there's an eternity of joy with Jesus waiting for him in a matter of weeks at the cost of that same Jesus is just mercy. And it's grace we never have or could deserve. So we're weeping and we're grieving. We're talking about hospice and miracles. We're talking about end-of-life preferences. But then we still lift up our heads because all is not lost. My treasure and my kid's treasure is ultimately not found in Matt. We have it yet. And that treasure, a capital T treasure, will hold us and sustain us now the same way he is every day up to this point. Perhaps more so now because he knows what it is to be a father and a husband. He's the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows and it is his joy that is now our strength. Could you say that? No, you can't. Your, your lives are meant to be a picture of the Gospel. And when you understand that, 
and you recognize that, that that gospel that your life is meant to be a picture of is, is possible because the gospel is applied to you, that God has met every need you have in Jesus Christ, that there's nothing that this world can do to take away from you the love of God that is in Christ Jesus who came and He died on a cross for your sin so that you could be made whole. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. God has met your every need. Your, your, your deepest longing for life and hope and purpose is met in Jesus Christ. When you get that, then you can go through a trial and you can go through unfulfilled longings and you can say with confidence, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember the big idea. God is always at work. Always at work to redeem His people and every one of you has a place in the grand story. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are working. And I just want to get real, Lord, and recognize and admit up front that there are Many of us in this room, probably to some extent all of us in this room, suffering trials, waiting on You, and, and, and some of us more so than others, Lord. There, there are people in this room, Lord, that have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's, it's been difficult. And I just want to thank You, God, that You know that. I want to thank You that You've not forgotten any of them. I want to thank You, Lord, that Your timing is perfect. And I want to thank You, Lord, that You would look upon us feeble, sinful people and You would see fit, Lord, to use our lives to bring glory to Yourself. I guess in other words, Lord, that You would take people who have broken what they were made for and You'd restore us to do what we were made for. You'd give us the fullness of, of human existence and purpose and that we would get, we get to be glorifying You. We get to be image bearers of You. We get to point to You. So I just pray that You would encourage the body this morning here, Lord. No matter where they're at and how they're waiting and how they're suffering and how they're, they're hurting, just encourage us with that simple truth that You are for Your people and that You are writing a story and that, that we get to know. Even if we don't see it yet, even if we won't see it till we get to heaven, we will get to know that You spoke Jesus to and through our lives. And that is not just enough. That's going to be wonderful when we understand it. So encourage us to wait and to hope and to trust that You're at work. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for fulfilling our greatest need. We pray that in His name. Amen.